brought to you by New Virginia Slims, the slim cigarette with rich Virginia flavor made just for women. And by the 32,000 people of Eastern, Eastern Airlines, smiling faces, going places. Wow, welcome back. <laughs> I know, it's been a while. It's been a while. It feels good to say that. Welcome back to My Little Tonys. This year has not been what any of us expected, I think. <laughs> we didn't think we were going to take such a long break, but it happened. <laughs> Part of me feels bad about doing this, but I think as a podcast listener, I often get tired of, or with a weekly podcast, I get tired of it really easily. So I feel like we're actually doing you a favor. Um, so you never actually get tired of us because exactly. we so seldom record. <laughs> you know, we got to keep you wanting more. I think this is the longest break we've taken since we started two yeah. years ago. But you know what? It's just like riding a bike, I think. Yeah, I got my my Google Doc open, ready to to get into it. Okay, so if you're a Patreon subscriber, you already know. I mean, I guess if you're listening to this episode, you already know what it, what it is because it says it in the name. But um, we're talking about 1969, which is the 23rd annual Tony Awards, which were broadcast by NBC on April 20th, 1969. Which does mean that the 69 Tony Awards were on 420. <laughs> That's why we do this. That's the groundbreaking um, historical <laughs> research that we are yeah. um, uncovering here. Although I think, uh, you know, 420 probably was not even a, a thing yet. Some people seemed definitely like they had uh, done a little something before they had to present. I'm not going to name any names. Loudon, St. John, St. Hill. For whom I... Canterbury Tales. For Canterbury Tales. It's a good thing I'm here. Let me show you. <laughs> so. I can get these. I can get them. I know I can. I think that like the major problem and why so many people seem intoxicated is that I think the teleprompter was really hard to read. Oh, uh, that and makes like, sense. I feel like there are several moments where people are just like <laughs> very blankly um, staring into the camera. <laughs> this is the first, you know, not to feel like we're grasping at firsts here, but like this is the first time we're going back to the 60s that has a ceremony since our very first episode because our other two 60s episodes were before they were nationally broadcast. So this is a real throwback to uh, the beginning of this podcast. And this was a weird, a weird one. I think that like one thing that we didn't really touch upon or maybe we did in our first episode when we did the 1967 was that Alexander H. Cohen, who was a producer, a TV producer, um, had kind of stepped in, I guess, to quote this article from the New York Times. He is the imaginative producer who has worked hard to earn a reputation as a latter-day Barnum, put the show on with his accustomed razzmatazz. So I think that this is like the beginning of the Tonys as we kind of know it today and incorporating a lot of these like this award show uh, narrative that is actually interesting because in reading about the Tonys of yesteryear in this large coffee table book, apparently Antoinette Perry was very anti making it like a dramatic award show. And um, that is part of why the nominees were kept secret in the early days. Um, Mm. But he 
was very much into TV-ifying it. I mean, thank God he did. I think ultimately (laughs) that was the right move. And I guess an inevitable move. Yeah. Um, And also from that article, another little window into what this ceremony looked like. Mr. Cohen insisted on black tie for the patrons who paid from $5 to $35 to be in on the festivities. The 1,554-seat Hellinger was sold out. Oh, it was at the Mark Hellinger. I don't think I said that. Following the show, a thousand guests who paid $25 a ticket took over four rooms at the plaza for the gala supper ball. Dining and dancing took place in the Grand Ballroom, the French Suite, and the Crystal and Savoy Rooms. Savoy? Savoy? Um, So anyway, so yeah, so it was at the Mark Hellinger Theater, which I think was where Dear World was, I want to say. And -hmm. it was hosted by Diane Carroll and Alan King. And the performances were from the four nominated best musicals, which were 1776, which had five noms and three wins and was ultimately the best musical winner. Hair, which had two nominations and zero wins. Zorba, which had eight nominations and one win. And Promises, Promises, which had eight nominations and two wins. And I think the big takeaway from this is that they just weren't giving out that many awards at this stage. Like, Mm -mm. you know, 1776 was the big winner with three. Apparently there's like, they were giving out like almost half as many awards as they contemporarily do. So I guess uh, kind of the narrative of the season, which you can sort of see in the nominations is that 1776 ended up really coming in out of nowhere and taking the top prize, winning the most awards, which, you know, it only won three, which is not that many. There was a lot of drama about, like, eligibility this season because not only did 1776 open literally, like, 12 hours before the Tony cutoff, Hare and George M. I don't know if they – it said different things in different articles, whether they actually sued or, like, threatened to sue because they – Um, Alexander Cohen, like, changed the cutoff at the last minute for the previous season to be, like – so they weren't eligible for the 68 Tonys, and then he changed it to be like, oh, you're not eligible for the 69 Tonys either. And they were like, well, what the fuck then? <laughs> yeah, and it was sort of, um, you know, going back to this TV narrative, was that he, like, realized that with the traditional cutoff date, which I think was, like, four weeks before um, the actual Tonys, like, he wouldn't have been able to put on his television spectacular. Also, like, arguably, like, I don't really think he's doing anything that innovative. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> No, I mean, maybe it's just like the technical element of like, you know, the show, it opens with Zorba, like the full company of Zorba kind of doing their thing. Like these were all big, except for 1776, these were all pretty big production numbers. So I can see why maybe it took some time to kind of figure out the logistics of putting all that together. No, totally. Especially, you know, this is only the third year they'd been doing that I guess I mean it seems like the earlier Tonys did have some kind of like entertainment aspect but it wasn't like the full production number that you know is happening now I think that like two of like the weirdest standouts from this ceremony for me is that they give a lot of special awards they like very oddly like punctuate the ceremony and like kind of seem random at um certain points and during Laurence Olivier's speech like he pretty much like brings up the discussion that is still happening now about like the reason why there's like this really amazing theater scene in uh Great Britain in the UK is because it is like nationally subsidized and like everyone's like wow like wouldn't that be great if that happened here we have been talking about a national theater in London since 1848 and now after running a company which we have done for six years the signs are that the thing will start being built on the Surrey side of the Thames sometime next year and so 
you who wish such an institution to take place in this country may cheer yourselves with the thought that it should not take more than 125 years. And I would say the other like odd part of this is like there are two scenes from two of the plays lovers in the great white hope and i feel like the way that they're presented like really falls flat yeah i think maybe it might have been just like the quality of this video was like so degraded that i found it sort of hard to understand what they were saying but i did appreciate that they were trying to figure out how to incorporate the plays this early and such like a substantial scene from each of them yeah you know it wasn't just your standard little montage so i guess like the season in general is kind of heralded as you know a really kind of like transformative season which i think that hair is like the big denominator in that but like as you kind of like dig deeper i do feel like um there is just a lot of um exciting things going on actors were speaking to audiences directly stepping right down into the auditorium and coaxing spectators to take their clothes off it now seems certain that the theater of the future will be a theater of more direct contact between play and audience, with the audience not just a group of passive observers like movies or TV watchers, isolated by the convention of an invisible fourth wall, but instead taking on an active relationship with the play. But it's like, with that being said, like, I do think that this is a, um, a really exciting season in maybe more quiet ways Definitely. Oh, I don't think we mentioned how we're splitting these up. So we're going to talk about hair next time. This time we're doing 1776, Zorba, and a little bit of George M, and then everything else next time. So let's get into the, it's not the big winner, but it is the winner. Yeah. 1776, opened March 16th, 1969, closed February 13th, 1972, after 1,217 performances book by Peter Stone, music and lyrics by Sherman Edwards, based on a conception of Sherman Edwards. It's a weird way to phrase that. I just copied that right from IBDB. Directed by Peter Hunt, musical staging by Anna White, and it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Featured Actor for Ron Holgate, Best Featured Actress for Virginia Vestoff, Best Direction for Peter Hunt, and Best Scenic Design for Joe Mielziner. And it won Best Musical, Featured Actor, and Direction. And the big asterisk there is that William Daniels, who played John Adams, was ruled ineligible for the Best Actor nomination because his name was not billed above the title of the show. And when he was nominated for Featured Actor, he refused the nomination, which is a very John Adams decision. (laughs) Mr. Um, Adams. Yeah. But um, I think that event led led them to change the rules to be like, you know, it's sort of up for negotiation if you're not built above the title. Mm-hmm. It's not an automatic disqualification. And the synopsis is, it's the summer of 1776 and the nation is ready to declare independence. If only our founding fathers can agree to do it. 1776 follows John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia as they attempt to convince the members of the Second Continental Congress to vote for independence from the shackles of the British monarchy by signing the Declaration of Independence. It feels very topical to be talking about the Founding Fathers right now, considering everyone is mad um, about the Electoral College. Yeah. (laughs) And also everything they have ever done. Yeah, no, I feel like this show in the past five years has just become more and more relevant as like, you know, first, I think that it really entered the discussion because of kind of the Hamilton factor. But I feel like it just like continues to be more and more relevant. And I think that like one thing, too, is that this is like such a 
cool, unique, and special show. But I feel like it's one that while it kind of has had like a revival buzz recently, and because of Hamilton, it's kind of been footnoted in a lot of like articles and stuff. I feel like as a theater fan, um, it has never really crossed my path. I've never really crossed its path, I should say. I think especially this Tony race too, I always kind of like struck me as like, oh, like everyone wanted to play it safe and that's why Hare didn't win. But like, I think in actually learning about this show, I would say that this was in a very strong season, the best musical of the season. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, there's a couple of ways to enter into this discussion. And I think when talking about it, like in the context of Hare, it's very like, I think in a couple of ways, it's sort of ended up being in the right place at the right time to be preserved and remembered in the way that it deserves. And number one is winning the Tony over Hare, which like Hare obviously didn't need the Tony to sort of have this legendary status, but 1776 definitely did. And if it hadn't won the Tony, it probably wouldn't have been made into the movie. And if it hadn't come right after sort of the My Fair Lady drama where Jack Warner, like, you know, replaced Julie Andrews to sort of mixed results. And he after that, he was like, when he, you know, when he adapted 1776, that's why the whole Broadway cast pretty much is in there. He was like, I am not making that mistake again. So, you know, 1776 ended up having some good luck kind of along the way. And now you have this very well-preserved version of it, which like is not as exciting as the stage version, but it, you know, you have the performances, you have like a pretty faithful um, documentation of the book, which is like the most important part of it. Like, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. one of the best musical books ever. So I want to talk about, I want to start by talking about Sherman Edwards, who is, you know, the brains behind the whole thing. And I feel like so much of the mythology around 1776 is like, oh, he was a history teacher and he like wrote songs. But it's like he was a professional songwriter. Like he wrote songs for Elvis. Every man has a flaming star, a flaming star over his shoulder. And when a man sees his flaming star, he knows his time. His time is he worked like in the Brill Building next to like Burt Bacharach and Carol King. He was like a serious songwriter. Yeah, that's like the funny thing too, because I was like, oh yeah, like Schoolhouse Rock vibes, yeah. and then it's like I feel like he basically did whatever the like 1950s equivalent of like Teach for America was. <laughs> So, you know, he had real songwriting credentials and I think, you know, it comes through in the score. But apparently it literally happened where like one day he was in the Brill Building with one of his collaborators and like halfway through a song, he was like, I'm not into rock songs anymore. I have another idea. and I'm going home to write it. And that idea was 1776. Yeah. And I would say a lot of his fare that he had like produced before this was like very like traditional sort of like crooner rock of the era. Like, I don't think it was ever he was ever like doing like anything as like special as like Burt Bacharach um nor I don't think any of his like standalone pop songs like still like very well remembered to this day no I didn't recognize any of any of the names so originally he wanted to do pull like a Meredith Wilson and the music man and do book music and lyrics um and then I think the producer was like Stuart Ostro was like no we need to bring in an outside book writer so they brought in Peter Stone which is actually interesting because in an interview they asked Arthur Lawrence if there were any projects that he ever regretted saying no to and he like very diplomatically was like I always say no for a reason but he was originally approached to 
um, direct and write the book for 1776, apparently. Well, I have to say, thank God he did. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that one would have been a match. No, and it's funny, too, because, like, when you were talking about the movie, I just do think that, like, what makes this so special and why it works so well is because you don't have, like, the traditional... I feel like a traditional book writer or someone who is, like, more versed in musical theater writing books would have, like, really gotten this wrong. I think that you kind of really hit the nail on the head of, like, why it works is because we, like, ultimately do know the ending, but, like, where the actual, like, drama of it is watching it all on unfold and like you know it's sort of like when you are like you know those like things that you do as a kid where you have to like rub off and you like get you like slowly but surely like uncover the entire picture of like everything or it's like something like knives out where it's like so much of the fun of it is like figuring out how this all works and they uh, multiple people have pointed out that the reason that the show works and maybe the movie doesn't work as well is that they, you have the device on stage where you have like that big board where you can sort of see how everyone is voting mm-hmm. and that's sort of like hanging over your head the whole time. And this also, while we're talking about the book, this holds the record for the longest stretch without a song in a musical from I think it's between The Lees of Old Virginia and... But Mr. Adams, I think there's like 20 or 30 minutes where there's no music at all. So there are only seven scenes in the whole show, but that's uh, the scene with that this long stretch is called uh, The Big Three. And it's actually a Apparently, the only time that an orca- that the orchestra has been allowed to leave the pit for <laughs> during like a show, which I think is also one of the really strange things about it, um, because like when you are first kind of like being introduced into the show, it kind of feels like there's a possibility that it's going to be sung through. Oh, that's an interesting idea because it does really open with a bang, which I think we've talked about. We talked about in 1998 when they had the revival and they did Sit Down, John. But I mean, I think that's like one of the best opening numbers because it really like, I think maybe it, I think it really like shatters your expectations of what it's going to be like, where it's like, oh, it's 1776. Everyone's going to be like all, you know, stuffy and polite. And then it opens with everybody like, being just like, oh my God, shut the fuck up <laughs> so like, to your main character. Good God, what in the hell are they waiting for? Sit down, John, sit down, John. For God's sake, John, sit down. Sit down, John, sit down, John. For God's sake, John, sit down. Someone ought to open up a window. And it's very like, you know, find out what happens when founding fathers stop being polite and start getting real, which is like, you know, that's what it is. While we're sort of on the overview, Ethan Morden, so he sort of, he talks about what's unique about it just quickly. This show is autonomous in its use of the essentials. First of all, there was virtually no dancing except for a minuet so stingy of movement that it could have been a freeze. There was no chorus. The Congress was the chorus. There was no intermission. There were no set changes. Indeed, 1776 made its book its first essential. It's almost too good a one, so obsessively following the trail of independence, like John Adams itself, that at one point it forgoes all music for more than 20 minutes. It had to be an extremely intelligent uh, blah, blah, blah. So the libretto is so keyed to the action that one can never tell when a song is about to start. There is none of the lead-in dialogue suggestive of a wee hour's desperation in Boston when new numbers are floated into a show and sometimes never genuinely anchored as it is rushed into town. 
On the contrary, 1776 is frighteningly well integrated. Yet its songs function very differently from the songs in other shows, in the lift that dancing gives to Hello Dolly, say, or the folkloric investigation of the Taylor model comes oil and Fiddler on the Roof. Does 1776 even need its songs at all? I think that's the question that comes up about the show a lot is, would this be better as just a play without music? Um, and Peter Stone has this interesting quote that's in uh, that um, Jack Vertel, you know, references in Secret Life of American Musical, where he's like, if you want people to know what you're saying, like, don't put it in the lyrics. Like, it ha- if you can't, like, have anything important in the lyrics, it has to be, like, in the book. <laughs> you know, I think we see it kind of, like, firsthand here of, like, the music is really just icing on the cake. Right. And you know what's interesting is the review of the cast album was, like, the person who wrote it, I don't have it open right now, he was basically like, I left the theater super unimportant with the score and like why would they even make a traditional cast album which is sort of an interesting thought that maybe this is a show where it would be like you would want to record the book scenes and sort of a like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf style Mm -hmm. Um, but then he was like but when I listened to it I was very like charmed by the songs on their own terms and they really made a case for themselves separated from how good the book was which is kind of how I feel about it also like I really enjoy the score I think there's a lot of bangers in it but uh, I do agree that they can sometimes feel a little bit extraneous Mm -hmm. and i think that like just in general like i think that looking at the four out of the four best musical nominees i feel like promises promises is like the most traditionally um integrated like book and score musical um because it's like i feel like 1776 zorba hair and even um george m which we'll talk about later like i feel like they all kind of like don't necessarily follow the I think that they're kind of experimenting experimenting with this like integrated book musical stencil that was kind of put forth a, you know a couple decades earlier yeah and you wouldn't necessarily like I think on the surface 1776 does seem very conventional but not when you uh, when you dig a little deeper I feel like everyone's kind of like first reaction is like snooze fest like <laughs> but I thought that this was um Why would a show celebrating the birth of the nation play at all during the height of protests against the system, let alone 1,217 times? That it opened when it did is purely coincidental. For years, Sherman Edwards had no luck trying to interest producers in his offbeat product until finally Stuart Ostro was ready to take the gamble with the provisio that Stone be brought in to rewrite the book. The subsequent timetable of rewrites, casting, and rehearsals delayed the show until early 1969, so it was never intended as a feel-good antidote to troubled times. But judging from the musical's success, a healthy dose of patriotism was just what the doctor ordered. On the other hand, the founding fathers were radicals. Granted, perukes, buckle shoes, and knee breeches look a little more formal than tie-dye torn jeans and sandals, but still, the signers of the Declaration of Independence were revolutionaries. Writing of the play, Stone makes it clear that he chose to include both an appeal to patriotism and an emphasis on the revolutionary character of what happened that sweltering summer in Philadelphia. In doing so, Stone made 1776 corroborate between past and present, or in his words, the events of July 4th, 1776 mean more to us during these troubled times than most of us could ever imagine. What of these similarities between those times and these states' rights versus federal rights, property rights versus human rights, privilege rights versus civil rights, and the differences, if any. Right, and I think that sort of the parallels between, you know, what was going on in Vietnam and what was going on on Broadway 
are very, very evident this season, not just with hair, but with the choice to do Mama Look Sharp on the Tonys, which is a very anti-war song um, and a very sort of quiet moment of the show. I'll name it to join up. Oh, what are you talking about? You don't have to join up. You're in Congress. What's that got to do with it? Well, you don't see them rushing off to get killed, do you? But they're sure a great one for sending others, I can tell you that. And Stuart Ostro later explicitly said that that was why he decided to do it. William Daniels, who played John Adams, um, he had like an interesting sort of reflection on being asked to do the show. Somebody sent me a script and it was the mi- in the middle of the Vietnam War. And I thought, this is ridiculous, doing a play about our country and waving a flag when we've invaded a place where we shouldn't have gone and lost all those lives. He basically has sort of a complicated relationship to it it's funny like all of his audition stories or him being like I went to the wrong theater for my audition I was like I well I guess that's it I'm not gonna do it and then they called him we're like come to the theater and then he like <laughs> sang half of a half of a song and he was like I can't remember the rest and then he was like all right I'm not gonna do it because he was gonna do the uh, on a clear day you can see forever movie because I guess he had been in the show and he like flew out to LA and they were like we're cutting your song and he was like tell Barbara to give me my song back and then she did but then he was like you know what my heart my heart is in 1776 <laughs> like I'm gonna go and do this role in that Barbara story I feel like he was like then everyone was like she doesn't call the shots but then she actually did and then she gave me the song back and <laughs> Also, for those of you who um, don't recognize him by name, um, all of the uh, 90s kids will uh, recognize him as Mr. Feeney on the Boy Meets World series. (laughs) And he's like in his 90s and still working. Yeah, he's in his 90s, still working. He and his wife have been married since like 1951. I wish him nothing but the best. Yeah, so there is a lot of stuff about Richard Nixon (laughs) involved in the history of this show and I and the two big things were that well let me just read this this is from Peter Hunt's obituary um, who directed both the show and the movie Um, the Broadway cast was asked to perform the show at the White House for President Richard M. Nixon but with some cuts including the song cool cool considerate men sung by conservative politicians who want to steer the country forever to the right be careful sir history will brand Mr. Adams and his followers as traitors traitors Mr. Dickinson to what the British crown or the British half crown (laughs) Fortunately, there are not enough men of property in America to dictate policy. Uh, Perhaps not. But don't forget that most men with nothing would rather protect the possibility of becoming rich than face the reality of being poor. And that is why they will follow us. To the right, ever to the right, never to the left, forever to the right. The cast and producers declined to censor the show, and the demand was dropped. The full version was performed at the White House in early 1970. But in 1972, when Mr. Hunt directed a film version of the musical, Jack Warner, the film's producer, and a friend of Nixon, who was then running for re-election, cut the song in post-production. Mr. Hunt, learning of the excision after the fact, was not happy. I asked him, Jack, how could you do this? And he said, with a pair of scissors. In the 2001 Los Angeles Times interview, Mr. Hunt recalled that after the kerfuffle over cool, cool, considerate men, the players gave that number a particular charge when delivering it at the White House. Let's just say the cast performed with additional verve, he said. I was sitting right next to Nixon, and even I was getting nervous. And if you look at the pictures of, like, the cast with Nixon, William Daniels especially has a real, like, (laughs) how the fuck did I get here look on his face. 
but I think this was one of the first, if not the first full length Broadway musical performed at the White House. And there was a lot of attention about that. It makes sense. I mean, it's honestly kind of probably a really powerful site specific uh, performance. Totally. Especially since, you know, they're coming up on the bicentennial, which is a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of patriotism and reflection on the founding fathers. Man, my notes are a mess. I have a note here that just says the book. (laughs) So hopefully I I covered whatever I wanted to say about that. Talking about the book and the genesis of it. And one thing that I think was a question that I was having the whole time while watching the movie was like how historically accurate it was. And I think that in sort of the profile of Sherman Edwards and him working on it, there's like a very sweet story about how he like has like his own little space and like, I guess he lived, he and his family lived in New Jersey and like in the local library, um, you know, he like spent basically years, um, you know, working on um, all the research for this. And um, I think overwhelmingly, like the consensus is that like, while there are historical inaccuracies in the book, like, there's nothing that's like, overbearingly, totally wrong. I think that Um, The one thing that I think people are most critical of is his portrayal of Thomas Jefferson's um, slave um, issues. Yeah, I think. Do we, is it time to talk about Thomas Jefferson? (laughs) That's really, like, as far as founding fathers to focus on, I think John Adams is, like, is the best one in terms of, like, having a legacy that is sort of being on the right side of history for most things. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Ben Franklin, I'd say, is probably medium, but <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, not a good guy, not like a cool, sexy hunk. And it's actually funny, and I guess like talking about the historic inaccuracies, like one example is that like, you know, it's kind of like position that everyone thinks John Adams is annoying, um, <laughs> when in reality, like at this time, he wasn't that wasn't necessarily true. And it actually became later when he became president that everyone started turning on him. I think that that's like an example of like it being historically inaccurate, but it is like a more of like a poetic justice. Right. I think, you know, you have to take a certain number of liberties when trying to make something <laughs> dramatically satisfying. But he did describe himself as I'm obnoxious, suspected and unpopular, which is pretty similar to uh, how it makes it in the show. Whereas if I'm the one to do it, they'll run their quill pens through it. I'm obnoxious and disliked, you know that, sir. Yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, Thomas Jefferson, they sort of lost the plot on that one. I think similar in the way that, you know, maybe Hamilton's biggest flaw is the way it sort of deifies George Washington. But I think sort of on that same topic, the thing I do want to give it props for is sort of it's the way that it deals with slavery in general where I think it would have been easy to kind of like hand wave it away in the way that I think Hamilton does. But it like, Mm -hmm. not only does it really sort of acknowledge kind of the hypocrisy of them trying to sort of fight for their freedom while there's like a huge population of enslaved people that they, that they're perpetuating. um, But they have, which is something that you don't see very much. You have the South sort of calling out the North by being like, you guys benefit from this too, which is something like, even in like sort of the American education system, like teaching about slavery and teaching about sort of what states were involved in what I think there is a very sort of wanting to brush northern states' culpability like under the rug. Who sailed the ships are the Boston 
laden with Bibles and rum. Who drinks a toast to the Ivory Coast? Pale Africa, the slavers have come. New England with Bibles and rum. And I think, you know, not to like pat them on the back too much, because I think this is sort of like the bare minimum, but I think, you know, thinking about the the medium of a Broadway, like a Broadway musical comedy, to have this song where, which basically like climaxes in the character doing like a fake slave auction, like standing on the table, which is like, it's horrifying in a way that like you sort of don't really expect it to go there. And I think that is part of what makes it like it sort of takes it to the next level as like a depiction of history. Yeah, and it's just like I think I'm just surprised that at that time they were able to like in such a neat and nuanced way to kind of portray that or like put that forth, I guess. Maybe it's in Ethan Morden's book, but he calls that the one um, truly dangerous moment in the show. Gentlemen, you mustn't think that our northern friends see our black slaves as merely figures in a ledger. Oh, no. They see them as figures on a block. Look at the faces at the auctions, gentlemen. White faces on African wharves, seafaring faces, New England faces. Put them in the ships, cram them in the ships, stop them in the ships. Hurry, gentlemen, let the auction begin. I mean, and it's also just interesting because the movie is like so sort of like steeped in like a form of naturalism. And I would say that that is like the one part of the movie that feels really it feels it feels really sinister and it feels almost the lighting and um, of it feels almost theatrical. Yeah. And that's like and it's an interesting choice for that character who um pretty much does nothing up until that point, does very little, and then just comes out with that. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, too, because I guess, you know, Ron Holgate wins the Tony, but it's like, you know, I feel like there are so many of the supporting cast members of the show basically just have their, like, one moment, and then they kind of, like, fade into the background of the Congress. Yeah, I mean, it's a great use of an ensemble, and that's why... Well, it's funny because Stuart Ostro was like, he was like, that's why I didn't want anyone build above the title because I wanted it to be like a, an ensemble piece just for the sake of morale. Um, but it sort of ended up backfiring. When talking about that decision, they were like, yeah, and of course, like, you know, uh, William Daniels was upset about it. But like the real pain in the ass of the production was Howard <laughs> De Silva, <laughs> who played for Benjamin Franklin. Like, and he doesn't give inf- information why, but he's just like, and <laughs> like, don't get me started on him. So Howard De Silva is actually not on the cast recording because he was basically having like a slow motion heart attack all through the like first week of performances then he was like I'm doing the show until the critics come and then he was out for like a month and missed the cast recording session so he was having a lot of health problems but I think he was also kind of being a diva because like I think one of his songs got cut and one of the books mentioned something about how there was a scene where it's like um, Adams and Ben Franklin are like sharing a bed in an inn and like a prostitute comes in Like, which doesn't seem like it really has a place there. But I mean, this is an extremely horny show also, just in general, which is another part of the, I think, you know, trying to humanize the founding fathers. Yeah, it's actually, it's honestly kind of surprising. I mean, out of like all the different things that have been like, 
tried they tried to cut them like i do think that like the whole um he plays the violin is like very suggestive oh yeah and uh while we're on the subject sort of a mystery swirling around this is that one of the only i think the only major cast member who didn't get to recreate their role in the movie is betty buckley who played martha jefferson there there isn't really like a definitive answer why and none of the answers are very flattering to betty buckley so i'm not going to repeat them but she sounds really amazing on the cast recording and i love uh, it's got a great key change at the end so you know at least we have that from her I also think that like the two major or I guess like the two only women Abigail Adams who is woven throughout it has like a very in comparison like a very PG uh, subplot where she's just like I need we need needles and he's like the women need to be making gunpowder but they also they both have a song about how horny they are for each yeah. other like <laughs> Come soon as you can to my cloister I've forgotten the feel of your hand Soon, madam, we shall walk in Cupid's Grove together And we'll fondly survey That promised land But I think the, um, the incorporation of her is a nice touch because they did have like a really um sort of unconventional relationship where they were very much equals they're very much in love and you know she obviously wasn't there but they used the device of their letters um and a lot of the lyrics do take you know actual lines from their letters um and so yeah and that's a great example of not being exactly historically accurate but um still sort of being true in spirit yeah, I guess it's like interesting too, because it's like I don't, you know, I'm not a Hamilton scholar, and I pro- probably at this point I know more about 1776 than Hamilton, but I feel like this is more my tempo of like a historic retelling, or you know, like a his- using history to like fuel art, and it's also kind of because Peter Stone and Peter Hunt like both kind of went on to do have other Broadway successes, but this is is I believe this is Sherman Edwards's only yeah it's not a bad legacy to have no it's kind of cool it's also kind of like I feel like he took on this project being like talking to his wife being like you know I really want to do this and like we might go broke while we're I'm doing this but like I feel like I need to and she kind of wrote off saying yeah like please do what you need to do and then it ended up being a big hit and um they probably ate well for the rest of their lives (laughs) yeah and just for a little snapshot of what a uh broadway musical cost at this point it was capitalized at five hundred thousand dollars and the budget ended up being four hundred thousand dollars so they were able to give a hundred thousand dollars back to their investors right away and you know i think that seems uh Seems kind of expensive. I don't know, (laughs) but I guess it had a big cast, but it only has one set. Yeah, exactly. That's my thinking is that like it feels really kind of like, I guess it's a large ensemble cast, but there isn't like a chorus, I guess. 
Yeah, no, there's no stars. Like, they aren't paying any star salary. So who knows? I guess the only other thing, I think that this show seems like it's popular in, like, regional and community theaters. And it must be just really hard to direct. And, like, I feel like because there is so much talking and, like, there isn't that much razzle-dazzle, I just, like, feel like there's a lot of ways that you could really go wrong with this. (laughs) Yeah, also a very large cast of men. And if you haven't looked up the... I think it was a 54 Below did like an all-female um, concert of 1776, Where which, let me see. So Carolee Carmelo played John Adams, Mary Testa played Ben Franklin. It's got a real all-star cast. That's definitely worth looking up. Um, although I think Mary Testa would, I want to hear her sing Molasses to Rum because I think that would be incredibly scary. Yeah. <laughs> I would also love to hear her sing the Lees of Old Virginia. <laughs> well, you know who does sing it is Bonnie Milligan. She does a great oh my job. God. Oh, yeah. And so they took a big risk opening it so late in the season. And they were basically like, we had no advance. And if the reviews were anything less than raves, it would have closed like in a week. But everyone fucking lost their minds, all raves. And it did great. Yeah. So I think next to Promises, Promises, it was the longest running show of the season. Also, I guess one thing that I do want to say is that I feel like it's funny because this season just seems so jam-packed with so many amazing shows and so many, even if they weren't successful, like kind of cult scores or like things that are regionally um, popular. But like, I feel like the season before this was just, there wasn't really that much of anything. It just goes to show that it's like, you know, so random. I know, like maybe if Hair had opened the season before, it would have swept. Yeah. Although it seemed like there was sort of an institutional um, pushback against Hair, which we'll get to next week. Next up, we have Zorba. Zorba opened on November 16th, 1968, um, and closed August 9th, my birthday, 1969, (laughs) which that might have been, that was the day that um, Sharon Tate was murdered. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Um, why it closed. Yeah. 
um, after 305 performances. Music by John Kander, lyrics by Fred Ebb, book by Joseph Stein, directed by Harold Prince, choreographed by Ronald Field, and it was adapted from the 1946 novel Zorba the Greek by Nikos Kana. Kana's Kazanstakis and the subsequent 1964 film of the same name. The story follows Zorba as he talks his way into traveling with Nikos, a young American who has inherited an abandoned mine on Crete. Eventually, Zorba falls in love with a French woman, Hortense. Meanwhile, Nikos falls in love with the widow. Tragedy ensues when Zorba loses all of his money to a belly dancer. Further, a mentally unstable man Pavli commits suicide after witnessing Nikos and the widow together. Then a member of Pavli's family murders the widow. So just, you know, fun romp. <laughs> it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Performance by Leading Actor for Herschel Bernardi, Best Performance by Leading Actress for Maria Karnilova, Best Performance by a Featured Actress for Lorraine Sarabian, Best Direction, Best Choreography, Best Scenic Design, and Best Costume Design, and it only won... Best scenic design for our friend Boris Aronson. Yeah, so it led actually with um, musical nominations this season. I think it was tied with Promises, Promises. They both had eight. Oh, they both had eight. Yeah. I think that's something that we've talked a lot about is like how Kander and Ebb has this like huge back catalog of like shows that we don't know that well and this was definitely one of them and um i think that one thing or it kind of came on my radar earlier this year because i think that um in the new york times they sort of did a like which cast albums would you take to a desert island with you and jesse green um actually selected this one oh Um, i forgot about that yeah so i feel like that was when i was like huh you know what's interesting is that it um because they did it in encores a few years ago and it picked up an exclamation point along the way it does not have an exclamation point originally but the encores production did so it went from zorba to zorba (laughs) yeah and in um the vulture review uh jesse green sort of talks about like how like there used to be an accent mark over the a but that was removed and replaced with a question mark at the i mean a uh exclamation mark at the end but he's like, i would love it if it was a question mark. yeah Zorba? well then he was like better they should have gone with a question mark because he <laughs> thought that the encores wasn't great so. yeah the encores uh production did not get very good reviews i guess this is what we like to call a problem show <laughs> so there are also actually a few sort of interesting tangents that i ended up going on in the research for this the first one is that so this was based on a novel by Nikos Kazantzakis who was a Greek writer it was based on a real person named George Zorbas Um, but Nikos his other big work was he wrote The Last Temptation of Christ which was uh, you know also adapted into the Martin Scorsese movie sort of an interesting um, body of work and then the other thing was that around this time the guy who composed the music for the movie was like a political prisoner and like was being sort of shuffled in Greece and like his music was banned. Like he was being shuffled around all these different prisons. He was having health problems. So like, you know, when you're searching, cause you know, when we do the research, we'll sort of, we'll search for the name of the show within like a certain range of dates. So like all of these articles about this were coming up, not super related, but kind of like, huh, <laughs> like there's some, some crazy stuff going on in Greece right now. 
Yeah, well, it is kind of funny because this guy who wrote the music for the I didn't really understand this, but the soundtrack of the movie was like very popular. Like mm-hmm. it was one of the best selling records of the 60s. So in like a lot of ways, I think that um, the idea to, um, you know, how Prince kind of came up with the idea to musicalize it. It's funny that you bring it up because nobody brings up whose idea it was, except in Hal Prince. It was actually Herschel Bernardi's idea, who was the star. Really? Yeah. And he was like, he came to Hal Prince and he was like, I want you to turn this into a musical and I want to star in it. And Hal is like... Like, um, in retrospect, it was a mistake to have him and Maria Karnalova in it because they had already starred together in Fiddler on the Roof and everyone was just like, oh, it's just like a Greek version of Fiddler, which is also my t- <laughs> which was my take on it originally um, mm-hmm. and sort of still is. But um, like, you know, like a depressing version, <laughs> although actually the original ending of Fiddler on the Roof or like the stories it was based on also have a very dark ending where like I think it ends with Tevya like, you know, like Golda is dead. Like, I think one of his daughters is dead. And he's just sort of wandering off alone. <laughs> so it's sort mm-hmm. of if they had uh, if they had kept that ending, it's sort of, you know, Fiddler meets Cabaret um, with a Greek twist. Yeah. So it was Herschel Bernardi's idea. And in um, my fa- my favorite book, the Candor and Ebb book, they sort of talk about Hal pitching it to them to like become part of it. Candor. Hal Prince asked us to read Zorba the Greek. Ebb. That tome. Candor. We read the book and then Hal called to find out what we felt about it. And what we felt initially was not good. (laughs) Ebb. And it was a very long, a long tome. Candor. Hal said, wait a minute, let me describe the opening scene for you. Ebb. You know how that little old lady on Golden Girls says, picture this. Then she tells the story. Hal was like that. Very excited. Picture this. This is how the opening is going to be. Candor. By the time he finished describing the opening, he had us. Ebb. We thought it was fabulous and he called it a buzuki parlor, but there is no such thing. Candor, yes, a bazooki circle, which doesn't exist. <laughs> Ebb, he made it up and we bought it because we didn't know any better. Oh my God. I just love those two. I know, that's so funny. Yeah, they. I love that they brought Golden Girls into it. Picture it Sicily, 1912. I know, I didn't expect that to go. But yeah, they, in another interview, they basically had the same story where Hal was like, What do you think about doing this as a musical? And they were like, Absolutely not. And then they were yeah. like, five minutes later Hal convinced them I think that that brings up an interesting thing too because I think that there was some sort of rights issue where it was more based on this version as opposed to the movie was like closer to the book than the movie adaptation was and I think that there was some red tape around them like how much they could borrow from the movie yeah I I think we've seen that a lot surprisingly like we saw that with Lacage we saw we almost saw that with uh with Sugar you know finally getting the some like it hot rights at the very last minute so it's kind of funny how that the sort of like nuances of the source material ends up being such a big issue yeah and it's also just interesting too because like I'm not super familiar with the movie Zorba but like I do think that like in general like something that we're seeing a lot while we're doing this research is all of these like ads for like art house movies that are like being shown at the time and I feel like this has such an art house sort of like dark neo-realist sort of uh, vibe to it yeah and also so speaking of uh, darkness, I mean, I think that's sort of the biggest criticism is the darkness of it. Um, but apparently Zorba died in New Haven and they changed the ending, you know, that close to the opening. I feel like another discussion point of the darkness is that like, I think that the scenic and cost, like the scenic design especially was like very dark and like, it was just like a very <laughs> moody and like murky. And I think that like with everything that we're saying though, I feel like there is such a, 
even divide between people whose opinions we respect where like people are like it was so dark and moody it was great and people being like it was way too dark and moody it just was like depressing fiddler Um, yeah um and so both clive barnes and frank rich said it was better than cabaret but ethan morden in his book he i have never heard him give such strong words to any show. (laughs) I think Zorba is one of the ugliest, most life-denying pieces of evil shit ever perpetrated as a Broadway musical, not least because it pretends to be beautiful and (laughs) life-affirming. Oh my God. And Ron Field said he called it classy, dull, and depressing. (laughs) I think that is something, I found an interesting kind of analysis of it that it calls it a wild mix of sex comedy, romantic tragedy, social commentary, and philosophical debate all in one. And I think maybe the way you react to it sort of hinges on how you interpret that philosophical debate and like what its philosophical point of view is. Mm. And he compares it to I Heart Huckabees. He compares it to the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And there's a lot of emphasis put on the song, the opening number, Life Is, which is what they perform on the Tonys. Mm -hmm. And sort of the iconic line is, life is what you do while you're waiting to die. But in the subsequent versions, they revised it on the tour to be less dark, first of all. And then in the revival in the 80s, which we sort of brushed over when we did that year, um, which had the, the stars of the film in it, it was changed to life is what you do till the moment you die, which is much less dark. And Kander and Ebb both talk about how they hated that change and wished they had um, pushed back against it. Yeah, this was like a case where the revival actually ran a few performances longer. And yeah, Kander and Ebb said that they made a lot of changes, including that, I guess another parallel or probably one of the biggest parallels to it in Cabaret is the person who's singing the Life Is song, um, this sort of female MC called The Leader, who's kind of woven throughout it in a less cohesive way than maybe the MCs woven through Cabaret. But like apparently that whole framing device for the 80s revival and the encore's production was totally just like removed. Oh, and one of the, there were a lot of funny profiles about Hal Prince because he was sort of getting to the height of his legend and there was a very rude, oh, okay. So Hal Prince has a reputation for being something of a smarty pants. He just won't stay labeled. Boy wonder no longer works. He's 40 years old. Luck but no taste failed when he produced West Side Story. The producer who can't direct became obsolete after Cabaret. Last Sunday night, after the opening of Zorba, the 16th show he's produced and the 7th he's directed, the sages were sitting around Sardis, confused all over again. It's Fiddler on the Roof with worry beads, they said, shaking their heads sadly. Then the reviews began coming in, and mostly very good. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I feel like this is a case where, like, I think overwhelmingly the reviews were tended towards being positive, but I think just word of mouth, like, kind of killed it. One of the other reviews um, compared him to, Jer- to compared Hal Prince to Jerome Robbins, and they said he has learned the principle of the musical as a Geshem Kunstwerk, which is the Wagnerian ideal of theatrical unity where every part plays its role in the whole. So it's true. There's a German word for everything. <laughs> this review Martin Gottfried wrote in uh, Women's Wear Daily might have been like the, um, the first time that concept and music, like the term concept musical was linked. I don't know if I necessarily believe that, but in the review he wrote, 
Conception is the big word here. It is what is coming to replace the idea of a book. There is even less room than in the usual musical for story because Prince's concept apparently won out on every question about cutting. So I guess like, I think that even how the show is presented on the Tonys, they're like, and a scene from Hal Prince's Zorba, where like, I think that this idea of Hal Prince kind of being the author of the musical was like really being put forth in all these different ways. And I think in his book there, he draws sort of an interesting connection about how like the things that he learned while doing Zorba he was able to sort of apply better in Company and Follies and him and Boris Aronson together. In Zorba, Boris and I got to know a great deal more about each other again. We did more thinking about the space than we had before. The palette, the blacks, the grays, the whites, how to work with them. We did more experimentation, the business of having people stand around and observe and comment, be within the story and without it. Touched on in Cabaret, amplified subsequently in Company and Follies. There was a ballad in the second act of Zorba in which a young man sings to the woman he loves and it becomes a trio as a lady representing the Greek chorus observes the scene and joins in. I never got it to work. In Folly, several years later, I had a man sing to an apparition of a young girl he'd been in love with 30 years earlier, while her counterpart, the woman she'd grown up to be, stood by and mistook his song as being sung to her. Two women and a man, essentially the staging quite the same. In Follies, I knew how to make it work. So you learn. Boris said Follies would not have happened had it not been for Cabaret, Zorba, and company. But I also think on the reverse side of that is that people are like, and then, you know, all of the mistakes he made in Zorba, he later made in a doll's life where like, you know, it's kind of set up in the same way where it's like people putting on a show, you know, putting on a show. And I think that this is also the first time that I've like seen people really come for Hal Prince and um, maybe that's not No, true. I was, I thought about that too, like talking about how we did, um, plugging our Patreon bonus episode on Merrily We Roll Along, where, um, you know, Sondheim and Hal Prince are both, like, people we, like, had their claws sharpened and were ready to see us fail. Like, you can already see the seeds being planted in the way that they talk about him Mm -hmm. and this show. Like, as soon as he has, you know, one success after another, it's like, you know, they're ready to see him fall. Although this did not um, earn its money back, so it technically was not a success. And it only take he only talks about it in his book for about 3 pages, so I think this is a pretty like minor. Yeah, Candor and Ed were like the only thing that we liked about the 80s revivals that we made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, people said that like and did we mention that it was also directed by the director of the movie? It was directed oh, by the director I didn't of the movie. Yeah, it was directed by the movie director and then it brought back the two stars, um Anthony Quinn and Leela Kadrova which we mentioned, she is the only one to do the like winning an Oscar and a Tony for the same role in reverse. And I think she also had the longest gap between the two roles, which both uh, are, you know, great accomplishments. And also, Joel, I found an article that Joel Gray was like, so that that 80s production toured and like halfway through, they called Joel Gray and were like, can you come in and like restage it? So oh, that's sort of an interesting, that's sort of a weird footnote. Well, one thing too, I mean, kind of in this discussion of people having such contrasting reactions to it is that like, I think that some, like someone like Jesse Green is like, this is like Fred Ebbs. Like these lyrics are so minimal and like sort of like filled with aphorisms and like vague and interesting and poetic sensibility to it. And then I feel like actually Ethan Morton in the Broadway Babies book was like, yeah, I recommend uh, you listening to the German version of this cast recording so you can enjoy John Kander's music music and like not have to suffer through Fred Ebb's lyrics so it's like interesting because I feel like 
with uh candor and ebb like i wow, that's n- so rude never think of them not like i feel like oh like this was a good score this was a bad score i've never like really heard anyone kind of be like this is candor's best work and fred ebb's like worst work <laughs> wow that, i mean and speaking of you know the german cast recording Hal does sort of add a footnote that it did much better in europe because i think they were sort of more um like attuned to that darker sensibility or like philosophy than we are in America and he said like at one point there were like four productions running in Finland simultaneously like it was very popular over there that's kind of crazy yeah actually it's really funny um not that this is like super related but in this podcast that I really enjoy Larry Maslin's uh, Broadway to Main Street he does a Zorba episode and he talks about when he was in high school I guess in the 70s going to Long somewhere on Long Island to see a dinner theater performance of it and when he got there with his date they were like hey jesse like we're not going to do the show tonight because you two are the only people who bought tickets (laughs) (laughs) wow i mean they should have gotten a private performance i know so uh behind the scenes it sort of ended up closing unexpectedly because um herschel and maria i think were clashing a lot behind the scenes and they were like we're just going to close the show rather than sort of deal with replacing them so that was sort of another thing yeah i don't know i like, I, I thought the score was fine. I mean, I think, like, almost all of these um, Candor and Ebb scores that I'm, like, encountering for the first time on this podcast, I, like, am listening to it once, and I'm like, yeah, it's fine. And then sort of on further reflection, I end up um, liking it more. So, you know, this isn't a show that I've, like, spent a lot of time reflecting on. So I'm, you know, I feel like I'm just sort of, like, reporting reporting the facts. There's also a mention that I think we talked about in 2001 where Antonia Banderas was going to star in a revival mm-hmm. that never uh, came. Yeah. Never happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was in a review that was like of the Encores production that was like, and we can see why it never happened because this is not a good show. Yikes. Yeah. And I think that like Jesse Green kind of came into seeing the Encores production, like loving the the music a lot and he was like it was really wrong you know like Mary Maisie's <laughs> amazing but like she was not the right I think in general he thought the casting was kind of bad and I think that like my biggest problem with it is that like it feels kind of kitschy in a way the hardest thing to kind of like get through was sort of like the bazooki kind <laughs> of like it feels like Greek salad dressings like dripping all over it but I feel like once I got through that I was got really into it yeah and I think it comes across well well in the performance like it's funny because it is like sort of the 67 Tony's redux where we have like opening with the candor and ebb opening number but it is just a good uh, introduction like everyone's kind of sitting around partying they like brought in the little boy to do his little dance (laughs) I thought it was interesting that they had microphones on stage which I feel like uh you don't see that much and I don't think you saw the during the rest of the time yeah. Hal was also talking about um, Lorraine Sarabian, where he was like, we found her and we were like, we found the next Barbara. Like, she's amazing. And then I think like her voice started to give out throughout the run. And then she kind of like faded into the into the, the distance. I mean, her really performance on the cast recording and in the Tonys is just really amazing. Yeah. And apparently she's teaching acting classes at HB Studio now. So. Oh, good. And she and was then- on Difficult People. <laughs> And then, um, and Cheetah ended up taking over the role on tour, which is like, you know, seems like a natural fit. Oh, 100%. I mean, I just like wonder if like Hal sort of was like, oh, this is going to be like my chance to like fix things that were wrong with Cabaret, but like in a different format. I mean, there's definitely like, 
you can see the through line with Cabaret, and not just because they have the same. Oh no, he has the same book writer as um, Fiddler. Fiddler. Who wrote the book for Cabaret? Joseph Masteroff, who did the She right. Loves Me book. Yes, Joe's on Joe's. So then last up for this episode, we have George M., which opened April 10th, 1968, closed April 26th, 1969, after 433 performances, music and lyrics by George M. Cohan, book by Michael Stewart, John Paschal, and Francine Paschal. So that was really a family affair because, as we mentioned, Francine Paschal is Michael Stewart's sister. Based on the life of George M. Cohan, the biggest Broadway star of his day, who was known as the man who owned Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Synopsis. George M. recounts the life story of George M. Cohan, a giant of the American musical theater who penned songs like Yankee Doodle Dandy, Over There, You're a Grand Old Flag, and Give My Regards to Broadway. In his triumphant career, Cohan helped transform the Broadway musical from a slapdash patchwork of songs and sketches into a streamlined, book-driven musical story. Covering a 60-year period from his childhood in vaudeville through his towering success on Broadway, George M. presents a rousing, tuneful portrait of this legendary song and dance man. And it only got two nominations... Um, Best Choreography and Best Actor in a Musical for Joel Gray, and it won Best Choreography for Joe Layton. And you found that video of uh, them recreating one of the um, numbers from it, and that is amazing. Yeah, no, right? I don't know where, who, I feel like someone was like, and you can see the American Dance Machine recording of um, this. um, Yeah, but it's like totally something that um, I had no idea, like the dancing would be like that, I guess. Yeah. Oh. Speaking of which, not speaking of which, but it reminded me something we forgot to talk about in 1776 is that um, R&B cover of Mama Look Sharp that you found. Oh, yeah. How did you find that? Good question. How did I find this? <laughs> I don't know. I just like put something really random in to um, Spotify and it came up. It's by Debbie Taylor and the Hesitations. <laughs> and it's uh, it's very, you know, I was I was into it, like especially once Debbie Taylor comes in to do sort of the mom's perspective. Sometimes the songs you least expect it, they try to make a run for it on the charts. Yeah, and apparently, like, yeah, I think that that was one of the songs from Zorba they tried to make into a pop hit, and I think there is also... No, I saw that one um, randomly when I was searching for something 1776-related on Spotify. Like the disco version of Never? It's kind of a banger. Um, anyway, so back to George M. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, the mythology about 
George M. is that he was born on the 4th of July, but actually he was born on the 3rd of July. (laughs) It's a little bit of personal um, myth-making. I thought the the New York Times obituary of him kind of gave sort of a good rundown of like who he was and why he was important. George M. Cohan called himself just a song and dance man, but at the height of his career, he was unquestionably the first man of the American theater. Songwriter, dancer, actor, playwright, producer, theater owner, he was the most versatile person in show business. An old trooper and hoofer whose dapper costumes, derby or straw hat, cocked jauntily over one eye, wisecracks from the corner of the mouth, and a lively caper across the stage with his fast-swinging cane were nationally known trademarks. He was regarded for years as just a Broadway vaudeville performer, but astonished the theatrical world by developing into a serious actor and dramatist whose work won praise even from the intellectuals who had previously ignored him. Born and raised in the theater, he could give lessons to the most erudite of university men in its technique. And I think this is the first jukebox bio musical yeah, that we see. That's what starting I, the trend. I was thinking, and also it's interesting too because apparently George M was like kind of averse to being recorded, even though he, um, you know, actually lived through the era of recording yeah there's very few i think i found one but it's apparently there's only like six or seven existing recordings of him singing and singing his own stuff i've been asked to sing a verse and chorus of a little marching song of mine the boys adopted more or less during the war i don't have to tell you i'm not much of a vocalist but i'll do the best i can with it johnny get your gun get your gun get your gun take it on the run on the run on the run Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Yeah, so this is actually their, like, note who better to do it besides Joel Grey. You know, this is probably the best recording of these songs that will exist. Yeah, and he said that he took most of his characterization from, what was the movie? Yankee Doodle Dandy? Mm-hmm. That, um, James who was Cagney. In that? James Cagney is sort of like the vision that everyone has of of what he was like. I'm a Yankee Doodle dandy. Yankee Doodle do or die. A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July. And I think overwhelmingly the um, opinion is that to like skip George M. the musical and just watch Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah. So, you know, talking about the political turmoil of the era, this is very much like a straightforward, like, you know, if you look at sort of the complicated patriotism in 1776, this one is very straightforward. And Joel Gray actually talks about it in retrospect. But George M. opened in 1968, an era of protest, not of smiles across white picket fences. The times they had changed, and Gray discovered the brassy patriotic tunes Cohan was best known for weren't landing the way they had for Cagney. The Vietnam War, he remembers, and all the political things that have gone on since did not allow those songs to be pure and unattached to dark visions. Over there, for instance, with his chorus saying, the Yanks are coming and we won't come back till it's over, over there, had originally marched troops into what was supposed to be a war to end all wars. But the war led to millions of deaths, a new kind of trench fighting, mustard gas, horrors unimagined when he was writing. And it didn't end all wars, something you can sense in the almost mournful way Gray begins the song in George M. Honey, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hoist the flag and let her fly, like true heroes do or die. 
Knowing that there's blood in that song, Gray remembers, and there's blood on the floor and blood on the soldiers and loss, and it wants to be something very positive. So it did not end up making its money back, even though it ran for a year. And I think what's an interesting parallel is that like during Cohan's like actual era, there was like this really heightened version of like USA patriotism that um, you know, it like Teddy Roosevelt was president and like people really kind of like see them as like two people who like kind of parallel one another in that they were both these like larger than life people who like had this America first attitude and like so many of like the crazy shows that George M put together had to do with like Europeans like stealing the plan for the Panama Canal and like (laughs) um, stuff like that it is sort of interesting to see how he would be like received depending on like in what light the like public perception of America was taking. I guess like there is like this weird form of like xenophobia in some of like, or like, you know, I think that you can't really have America first without there being like at least some sort of like little Other. bit of other othering well and i think like the real george m also ran into some political trouble when there was like a big strike in 1919 like all of the actors were sort of striking over bad working conditions and he was like he you know made his shows continue to go on because he was like you know it's our job to blah 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 and like don't complain which is you know i think comes out of sort of that like vaudeville attitude But um, coming back to Richard Nixon, as we always have to, (laughs) the Nixons came to see George M. And I just had to take the quote of uh, uh, Richard Nixon's reaction to it. Backstage, Mr. Nixon told the star Joel Gray and the cast, it was wonderful. It had such movement and color and such wonderful music. We all loved it. Which is like, you know, (laughs) Nixon not coming for Clyde Barnes's job anytime soon. (laughs) I think that one thing that always struck me about it, too, is that this was like an early Bernadette plays his sister, but kind of left pretty soon. I mean, by the time this Tony's rolled along, she had left to be in. I think we kind of uncovered that she was took a role in this Beatrice Arthur vehicle called The Mother's Kiss. That was basically like about a domineering um, mother. It closed on the road and Bernadette's role was eventually written out. So she should have been happy with her role as Josie Cohen and uh, Cohen. And <laughs> there was a lot of shuffling this season because Jill O'Hara also started in the show and then she left for Promises Promises. And then Ken Howard, who was in Promises, Promises, left to play Thomas Jefferson in 1776. And so Diane Keaton left hair to be in one of the plays. So everyone's just running around all over town. I think that the only, you know, thing is that this was like probably one of our only chances to talk about George M. And um, I think that one thing I didn't really realize is that next to Agnes DeMille, he's like really considered to be like, you know, one of his big achievements that, you know, is still there's a lasting impression is that he was like using dance to like move the plot of his show forward too. One more thing that I thought maybe was kind of interesting is that in Ethan Morden's book he kind of talks about the difficulty of like capturing the real George M. The real George M was nothing like the strutting dynamo that Cagney, Mickey Rooney on television, Joel Gray and others have as a rule presented. Yes, Cohan was cocky, a smart aleck. He called everyone kid as if he were the boss. He was the typical aggressively compensating short guy, albeit with the talent to back it up and the self-invention to pull it off. But that self-invention was not noisy, not busy. Cohan was above all an underplayer. He spoke very, very quietly. He could prance around when necessary, but mostly he hypnotized the public, pulled them in, hardly moved at all. An eyebrow, maybe. 
All this Yankee doodling obscures the Kohan style just as the new, the now uncorrectable Kohan obscures his pronunciation, the more truly Irish Cohen. Still, to go into legend is to become a fantasy and a George M. centered on something less pugnacious than Gray and Layton's whole Yankee Doodle production would have been only deflatingly authentic. That's all I have to say about that, I think. Yeah, no, I think that that's, um, that's that. Wow. All right. We did it. We're back. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of like psyching ourselves out to, you know, coming back, recording the next episode. It's got to be a good one. I hope this was a good one. I feel like it is. Sometimes you never know until you get it into editing and see what you got there. But uh, I think this, I think we did it. So next time we got hair, we got promises, promises, we got dear world. There are a lot of weird flops to talk about briefly. We're going to try to keep it brief. I feel like next episode is going to be much longer. (laughs) I say with my head in my hands, (laughs) I don't mean to sound so beaten down already. It's been so long since we've wrapped it up. What do we, what can we tell them? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at my little Tony's. And you can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. And thank you to everyone who sort of reached out to us during our hiatus and was like, when are you coming back? We miss you because, um, you know, it's nice to hear. All right. So, yeah. So see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.